to the Metal Bob Live Podcast. I am your host, Metal Bob. Today's show is brought to you by Legend Picks, artist Jeremiah Kallick, and also the Texas Vinyl Coalition. You can find links to our sponsors and more on the Metal Bob Live website. There you can also find links to the latest Metal Bob gear, including shirts, hoodies, and more. On today's show, I had the honor of speaking with vocalist Toby Jepson of Little Angels and Wayward Sons. We discuss his career, going way back to Mr. Thrud. We discuss Little Angels and also the Wayward Sons. So sit back, have a listen, and enjoy the show. Thank you. Hey there, Bob. Hello, Toby. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm great, man. First off, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. Oh, no problem, pal. I'm, I'm having difficulty hearing you, actually. Hang on a second. Hang on a minute. How's that? Speak again? Yeah, can you hear me good? Oh, I can hear you better now, mate. Yeah, that's good. All right. So, yeah, man, appreciate your time tonight. Not a problem at all. Lovely to speak to you. So I'd, I'd like to start back early in your career and kind of work up to the Wayward Sons. Is that all right with you? Absolutely. Whatever you want to ask me, sir. No problem. Well, I'd like to ask you a little bit about Mr. Thrud. You and you and Mark Plunkett started that band back when you were in high school, and it kind of turned into Little Angels. Can you give us a little insight on that? For, for a start, I can't believe you even know about Mr. Thrud, Bob. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, it was a typical... Um, well, I guess kind of typical situation for a lot for a lot of young musicians that um, me and Mark met when we were eight years old, at, at what you know, in the UK junior school system and um, shared a love of rock and roll and stayed friends. And as we grew up and we got into secondary school, which I guess is your kind of high school, um, we started experimenting with, you know, I, I started experimenting with experimenting with experimenting with the guitar he was already in a, a youth orchestra where he was playing the trumpet um but because our, our rock and roll our sort of love of rock and roll was really really growing at this point i'm talking about the point when we were sort of i guess 13 14 years old that sort of age um i sort of convinced mark to buy a bass guitar and along with a friend of ours called charlie who was a drummer we started our first band and it was really just just like a lot of other young people we went in, we were in a, a mark's dad's garage um just making as much racket as we possibly could you know um although i quickly came to understand that i was a useless guitar player and never would be a guitar player so i i sort of adopted the role of the singer because there was nothing else i could do <laughs> <laughs> and um and, you know, we, along with a friend of ours called Wayne Horn, who was a really good local guitar player, we formed our first band. And that band was called Zeus. Um, and then we sort of played around with that for a couple of years. And we, we sort of basically made that, made, did, did a couple of shows, nothing major. And eventually that evolved into a situation where we, we um, finished, in, finished, at six, uh, finished at secondary school and we went to sixth form college, which is our sort of higher education, uh, part of the higher education system over in the U.K., and we met um, and worked with um, a guy called Bruce Dickinson, um, who eventually became the guitar player for us. And um, that was where Mr. Thrub was born. And it was it was born out of a kind of a joke, really. We There was a thing called the TSB Rock School competition in the UK back then, which was a kind of there's a bank, uh, a, a British bank called the TSB. Um, and I don't think it even exists anymore, but it was then. And they used to run these youth 
um, competitions which were music-based and essentially they used to invite bands, lo local bands or bands from all over the country to sort of enter this competition. And we, for a joke, we sort of like, we'd, we'd seen it advertised on TV, local TV, and um, we sort of said to each other, well, why don't we enter that just for a bit of fun? And the only requirement was to... Um, to record a, a very quick demo of two songs and you had to sort of submit a form that you had to send for in the post. There was no internet at this point, of course. Um, and we filled in the form and sent these, these demos off and um, we called ourselves Mr. Thrud, which was a bit of a joke. It was actually a character from a Dungeons and Dragons uh, magazine that was hanging around in the common room when we were at sick form. And we sent it off and didn't expect to hear anything, but actually got through to the heats. And so we ended up going to a town called Wakefield in the north of England and performed uh, on the bill with a bunch of other bands. But it was a kind of really cool intro to bigger shows because it was packed because all the all the schools from around the from around the region sent busloads of kids into this big nightclub, you know. And so we played in front of an audience of maybe I would say. 3,000 people and we and up until that point we'd only performed performed in front of 20 people do you know what I mean and most of it was our family that sort of thing um and so we were we were really bitten by the bug you know we came back from that competition we didn't win it but we what it did was it re, it kind of galvanized our approach to wanting to be in a band and um we sort of looked at each other and sort of said hang on a minute you know this could go somewhere because we got a great reaction and we'd started playing shows a local level in Scarborough, the town that we came from in the northeast of England, um, at a place called the Stephen Joseph Theatre in the Round, which was a very famous theatrical theatre, um, which was which was uh, the home of a playwright called um, uh, Alan Aitborn, who's an incredibly world-famous world playwright. But he had a theatre in Scarborough, because that's where he lived. And the guy that ran that theatre was a massive rock and roll fan, so he used to put local shows on in, in, the, in, the, in the bar, really, which is the bar area of the theatre, on Sunday nights. And we'd started playing shows then. We were building up a local following, and, and really, we sort of the competition and the fact that we were building a little local following just led on to the kind of obvious thing where we looked at each other one day and went, actually, maybe we could do this. Maybe this could be something we could pursue. And I don't think any of us really... I don't think any of us really felt it could be... Um, uh, a career that, at that particular point. I did. I mean, I must admit, I did. I was absolutely gung-ho by this point to be in a rock and roll band and make it a career. But I think Bruce and Mark Plunkett were, uh, and Jim Dickinson, who was his brother, and and, um, and Gary, the drummer, who was... Um, actually, it was, it was um, David Hopper who was the drummer at the time, actually. Um, I don't think those guys were really considering it to be a career, but it very quickly became apparent that we had a certain something, you know, and, and and people were writing about us and we got a little couple of mentions in Kerrang! magazine over here and people were starting to take, take a bit of notice. So that sort of led on to meeting our manager who ended up being the Little Angels manager for pretty much the entire career, uh, Kevin Nixon, who ran a, ran a small uh, rock and roll label in, in York over here called Power Station Records. And they were involved with bands like Maniacs and Tokyo Blade and quite a lot of sort of other European sort of hair metal bands at the time. And he took us on and um, we changed our name to Little Angels. And that was the start of everything, really. So um, as a bit of a potted history. That's about as much as I can tell you, sir. No, that's great. So I'll, I'll give you a little. So this is kind of how I discovered Little Angels, if you don't mind me telling you. So 
you know, over here, your guys' first album, Don't Pray For Me, it's got a little bit different album cover. It's just got the band on it, you know, and I'm yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. in the record store, and I was always one of those guys that would just, like, if an album cover looks cool or if the guys on the cover look cool, I'll buy it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of how I first heard of you guys, man, and, I, you know, I've, be, I've been a big fan ever since, and, uh, you know, every one of your albums to me is, is, is phenomenal. Thank you. But uh, So uh, do you have a favorite Little Angels album? Well, I mean, I, it's an interesting one because over the lock, we've, we've been, you know, just like everyone's been suffering from the pandemic and all the rest of it, we've, we've been in lockdown over here. I mean, we're not in it anymore, but, you know, at the beginning of the lockdown, I sort of sort of decided I was going to spend a, a lot of time, you know, sort of galvanizing with the fan, fan base and doing performances online, which I've been doing. And a lot of what I've done through those, through those, I did 12 sessions through over three months. I did one every every single Thursday night. I went back and I listened to all of the Little Angels records. And I've got to be honest with you, Bob, it was the first time for a long time I'd really listened to them, you know, really properly listened to them. Because a lot I was getting a lot of requests from the fans over here to say, oh, will you play, you know, Promises? Will you play When I Get Out of Here? Um, you know, and, and, you know, will you play um, Love is a Gun from Young Gods? And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't think I've played half of these songs live, you know. Um and, you know, I mean, obviously, back in the day when we when we were going through the album cycles, we would play, you know, the the best of the record. You know, certainly when we sort of got got through to the third album, you know, we the the early stuff was less and less and less. You know, so I took it as an opportunity to sort of relook at the records, and I've got to say that I think every single one of the albums. I mean, we only made the three studio records, but each one has a very special thing you know i think the don't pray for me album is probably if i'm pushed i'd say is my favorite mainly because i think it was a bunch of young kids making as much noise as we possibly could but having fun developing ourselves as as as, as performers but also crucially for me it was uh, the end well the beginning the beginning of a long journey into songwriting and i'd spent a lot of my life as a, as a young person kind of getting to grips with the concept that I wasn't ever going to be a fantastic musician, but what I was really interested in was writing songs. Um, and so my heroes were, you know, uh, you know, Freddie Mercury and, and, and key people like I mean, David Bowie's my biggest hero, really. But Queen were a massive band for me. Um, the Beatles were a huge band for me. Um, you know, and Elton John, et cetera, et cetera. And that what they really were, were brilliant songwriters. And I think, don't pray for me was one of those moments where I started to realize that I could write beyond the normal because we wrote a lot together at that point. Like, you know, we wrote, um, I guess she's a little angel and things like that. Those, those early songs we wrote them was uh, wrote those songs as a band, but, um, and even the earlier stuff like better than the rest and sex in cars and things like that. I don't know if you remember those songs off the big bad EP, but you know, um, th those were written as a band, but, don't pray for me was the time where I branched out and I wrote don't pray for me. I wrote, I wrote the song don't pray for me and no solution on my own and big bad world was one of my songs even though it's got all the band members it actually was my song um, and then I co-wrote a lot of stuff with Bruce and Dan Reed from the Dan Reed network and but I, I started to realize that I was a songwriter and that was my thing so I think don't pray for me stands as a kind of beacon for me really in lots of ways but I think if I'm for, for the from a, from a point of view of what the band achieved, um, I think I think Young Gods is probably the most accomplished record because we we really pushed ourselves, you know, and really stretched, pushed the envelope, and you know, really tried very hard to write a record that 
explored every avenue of our love of rock and roll. Um, but then again, I look at Jam and I sort of think, well, Jam, you know, that was over here was a number one record. We sold a million copies of that album. It was a successful, really successful record. And it blew the doors off your Europe for us. I mean, it didn't happen in America for us, sadly, but... Um, but, you know, it was a, a very successful record. So each one holds a very special place, I think, in the history, you know. Absolutely. So I'm going to move on a little bit. I got, so I know you did a little bit of acting, and I don't know if a lot of people know this about you, but you were in quite a bit of, you played quite a few roles in a lot of different uh, television shows. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, but I mean, it was a weird one, really, because I kind of found myself, after I after Little Angels split up, I did a solo record, Ignorance is Bliss, which I'm just actually re-releasing 25 years later at the moment. Um, and I was very proud of the record, but it, it sadly sort of bit the dust. You know, it, it didn't go anywhere, and I, I sort of got very ill, and, and I sort of had to retreat from the music business for a couple of years. But what I, I did was I, I ended up working for a friend of mine in, in, in the south of England in, in a county called Surrey, and... Um, I was down there working for him and I happened to be reading the newspaper one day, the local newspaper. And it said Ridley Scott um, making new new movie, um, looking for extras between the ages of 20 and 55. Um, and the auditions were literally with the next day. So I kind of went down and queued up with a load of other people, you know, like literally hundreds of people queuing up outside of this community center in, in, the, in, in a town called Farnham. And I went through the whole process and I got, and I got the role. And, and all it really was was an extra role. But it was kind of, I did, um, I was, a, and it was for Gladiator, the movie Gladiator. So I ended up being a, a, a Roman soldier and a, and a goth. So I, um, a, a, a Germanic sort of soldier of the period. So I went through that whole the process, got the role amongst thousands of other people. I mean, there was thousands of extras on that film. Uh, and then I found myself about, I think I got the role in about the September, say, and then they weren't shooting until the February the next year. And so we were told to grow our beards and not cut our hair and all this sort of stuff, which is kind of ironic because I'd recently had all my hair cut off, you know, from being a rock and roll band. <laughs> rock and roll band. So I ended up on this on this film set with Ridley Scott directing Gladiator. And because I lit, I was my digs were very close to the film set, they kept asking me to, to, to come in really early and take part in some of the sort of key scenes and things like that. And I got to know the first ADs and I got to know, to, uh, got to know quite a lot of the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, cam the camera operators and things like that. And that led on to me sort of basically sort of working in a lot of films. I worked, um, I had a small role in Sleepy Hollow, which sadly was cut from the movie, but I worked with Johnny Depp and Tim Burton on that film. Um, I did a lot of British television I worked on a, um, another movie called The Visitors with Jean Reno, where I had a role in that. But my sort of, I guess, the pinnacle for me really is I ended up working um, as a stand-in, um, which is a, a, essentially a technical job, really, where you 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 stand in for the for for a character of a. In this case, it was a TV series, but the TV series was the, was the Band of Brothers, which was um, I don't know if you you guys in America have had that. I guess you have. It was a Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg production for DreamWorks, and I worked on that that TV series for a year, where I stood in for Damian Lewis and Michael Fassbender and all kinds of people. So I had a kind of a very it was kind of a backroom role. I wouldn't say that I was an actor as such. I mean, I think that's stretching it a bit. But what I did. What I did was I met a lot of very cool people and worked on some very cool TV and movie projects. And um, that's that sort of fed my interest in um, I mean, I've always been a massive movie fan. Um, and that, that kind of kept my 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 love of movies very, very high in my my sort of consciousness. 
which has led on to me to these days. I'm, I'm writing scripts for films. I'm, as well as being a musician, I, I write screenplays and, and um, I'm, I'm involved in a small film company and two or three other projects that we're, you know, we're working on our, our feature film thing. So it's always been part of my world, you know. Um, but it was very exciting. It went on for about three years. And, um, you know, like I say, I met some great people and had some great times, you know. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. So, okay, so you've you've done quite a bit. You've played with quite a few bands too. In between, you know, Little Angels and then now Wayward Sons. You were in Fastway for a while. You, yeah, you, you were in Gun there for a little while, and you actually recorded albums with both bands, correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the Fastway thing was kind of weird. I mean, it was it was a kind of very strange period of my life. I was touring as a solo artist in the UK, and I was recording very basic EPs just to keep my hand in, but I had so little money and I, I was very, I was kind of anti-record labels at the time. I sort of didn't want to work with a lot of the same people that I'd worked with in Little Angels. And that was probably my mistake, to be honest, now looking back on it. But I, what I did want to do is I wanted to be in control of it all myself and make, you know, if I made any mistakes, I wanted them to be only on my shoulders. That was the whole idea. And I wanted to go out and rediscover myself and see what all I could do with, 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 you know, entirely under my own steam, if you know what I mean. So, I'd spent from sort of 2002 until just before, well, 2007. So about a five-year period, I spent touring as a solo artist with a number of different people, with a number of different EPs, releasing material whenever I could afford to record it, etc. But I happened to play a show opening for Glenn Hughes um, at the Shepherd Bush Empire. I got invited to do that by the promoter, and I bumped into... Um, the guy who is now my agent and one of my co-managers, a guy called Steve Strange, who is one of the world's most successful agents. He runs a company called X-Ray Touring, and they, they look after everyone from the Queens of the Stone Age to Eminem to Coldplay and Saxon and all kinds of bands. They've got hundreds of people on their books. But Steve is also a drummer, and he sort of said to me, he said, um, oh, I remember you from Little Angels. I'm putting together a version of Fastway with Fast Eddie Clark, would you be interested in singing in the band? And I said, well, I would, but I'm I'm also a solo artist. And he said, oh, well, don't worry about that. You know, this is just a part-time thing. Or, you know, we'll, we'll, we're just going to go and do some festivals and we'll have some fun. So I went down and met Eddie and and and, um, and John McManus, who was in Fast, uh, was in um, Mama's Boys. I don't know if you remember that band. Yep. They, he was the bass player in Mama's Boys. And so me, Steve, John, and Fast Eddie, we formed a new version of Fastway, and we toured that all over the world. And that led to um, Eddie and me making a, an album. I mean, Eddie was desperate at the time to make a, um, a, a new Fastway album because not putting too fine a point on it, but he'd spent a lot of his life as a, as a full-blown alcoholic. And he used to say to me, look, I can't remember even making a lot of the last Fastway records, you know. So he felt kind of quite, I think, quite embarrassed by that. And he, and he sort of said to me, I'd love to make one more record, you know. And um, and he was an older guy by this point. He was in his 60s and all that. So I helped him. Essentially, we wrote some songs together. We went in the studio and he, 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 he basically funded the whole thing. And we made a Fastway record, which is very, quite a unique record, really. He was very fastidious. He had a very clear focus on what he wanted to do and he wanted it to be a very basic album he didn't want it to be full of thrill, frills he wanted it to be like a, a kind of hard blues rock album that was all about his guitar sound and all the rest of it so he was he was completely disinterested in the drum drums and bass he was just more interested in just all the guitar playing you know but it, we put that out and that you know that's kind of become a bit of a legendary record really in lots of ways um and we did a few more shows with him and then 
yeah, I mean, I, I then joined Gun for a period of time, and they're, they're a Scottish rock band, you know, as you know, and I spent two or three years with those guys, and we put out one EP called Pop Killer, which was great fun. And it was... What I've always done, Bob, is I've just... Whenever an opportunity has been presented to me, I've always felt it would be foolish not to grasp it with both hands if it felt good enough, you know, if it had some credibility, if it had um, some authenticity. And both of those projects felt so very authentic. I mean, Fast Eddie was, is probably the most authentic musician I've ever worked with in my life. I mean, obviously, his, his, his work with Motorhead precedes him, but Fastway also were a very, very successful band, especially in the US, you know, as you will well know. Um, and so working with Fast Eddie was a, a, an incredible privilege uh, and a real a, a massive head turner. You know, he taught me an awful lot. And when he passed away a couple of years ago, it was like le losing your brother, really. He was um, he, he was such a, a massive influence on my life, you know. Um, but I've always felt that, you know, when these things are offered, you should take them. Um, and it was the same thing with Dio's Disciples. I told with, you know, the late, great Ronnie Dio's last band to celebrate his life. And then we came over to the US. Um, well, I, the band were in the US, but I, I came over from the UK and we toured. Um, over, you know, mainly the East Coast, actually, and down into Texas. And um, we, we did a lot of shows over there, did a lot of European touring. And I, I, again, it's the same thing. I just feel, you know, if, if Wendy Dio rings you up and says, I love your voice, I'd love you to be part of this project, then you're not going to turn that down. You'd be a fool to, you know. So I kind of feel that um, these things have been presented and that it's, it, I'm duty-bound as a musician and, and, a, and a lifelong, you know, lifer in this business to, to, to take those opportunities, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, you've recently, in the last few years, you've done some producing for some young bands too, correct? Yeah, yeah, a lot of, lot of production. And I kind of fell into that one. It was, um, I started really, I guess it started when I was doing my first solo record, Ignorance, Ignorance is Bliss, which is a Toby and a Whole Truth project. It was the first solo record after Little Angels. And I found myself in a position where the days of being in five-star, luxurious, kind of, you know, um, you know, residential studios uh, were long gone. You know, um, I didn't have a record label behind me. I, I I was having to make a solo record entirely on my own. I mean, I did have some money from Sony Publishing. A friend of mine, Blair McDonald, who was the MD, um, the MD of the company there at the time, was very, very supportive. And he sort of gave me a bit of money. He said, look, why don't you buy some equipment? Why don't you install that equipment in your house and take your time to make a record? There's no rush. And so that's exactly what I did. I I sort of jumped in with both feet into the deep end and bought some gear. Um, and at the time, it was ADAT recording. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I cobbled together this basic home studio and spent probably about a year or so on and off, really, from the writing process, making my first record. And it was a baptism by fire, Bob. I had to learn how to do it, you know. So I was on the faders. And, and, and it, it, it was quite a revelation because I'd, I'd spent so many years in major studios with huge producers, you know, watching them, you know, press the buttons and push the faders and turn the knobs and all the rest of it. And I'd never anticipate ever doing that myself, you know. And so it was kind of a massive learning curve, but I really enjoyed it and it really suited me. And I really kind of felt that it was incredibly creative as an environment. So along the way, I've been asked to do things and it came to around about 2000 and... I reckon it was around about 2009, 2008, 2009. I got asked to produce a band called um, the Virgin Marys, which are, um, were a band, band from Macclesfield in the UK, which is in the, in the north of England. Um, and I produced their, their first couple of releases, including the first two EPs and their first album. Um, and it did really, really well. And I, then I started getting asked to, to produce other things. I've, I've, I mean, to date, I've produced 27 albums as a producer, including a Saxon album, 
Um, obviously, I did the Fastway record. I've done um, I did an album for the band The Answer. Um, I've, I've done a band, three albums for a band called The Brew. Um, you know, lots and lots of hard rock records, really. And it's it's become a, a, another little thing that I do. You know, I mean, at the moment, I'm, I don't do a lot of it because I've, I've spent a lot of time, obviously, working on Wayward Sons, and also, you know the sort of the market for for record producers has kind of dried up because people think they can produce records of their own in their own bedrooms you know which i don't believe they can and i think that the, the proof of it's in the put, proof of the pudding's in the eating a lot of the time with that um but you know i love doing it whenever i get asked i always jump at the chance so it's um it's it's i find it very 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 uh it's great to be on the other side of the glass you know what i mean so i'm not the one under, under the pressure to actually produce actual performance it's it's great to be on the other side helping other people discover themselves you know absolutely so that brings me to wayward sons man you guys in 2017 you released an album called ghost of yet to come um yeah so, some of the uh until the end's probably my favorite song on the album i love ghost don't want to go is a great album or a great song um so how did the wayward sons come about well again happenstance really i'd i'd sort of come to the end of my um my love affair of touring with other bands and not being under not being under the jurisdiction of it having to be about me i mean i did i toured with fastway singing singing all of fastway's songs pretty much by and large i toured with gun and we were doing nothing but gun songs i toured with dio's disciples where we did nothing but rainbow black sabbath and dio songs which was unbelievable i've got to add you know i mean imagine being in, in front of 50,000 people at download and singing, uh, you know, Kill the King, which is, and, and Long Live Rock and Roll. It was an extraordinary experience, you know, and um, seeing people crying in the front row, you know, listening to those great songs, you know, I realized how, what, what a privilege it was. But I did kind of come to a point where I felt, you know what, I, this, this is other people's material. And as much as I'm loving it and I feel very privileged, privileged to be here, it's not satisfying my soul as a writer. And that the, the one thing, that you need to know about me, Bob, as, a, as, a, as an artist, is that the key thing for me is I'm interested in songs and songs only. I, I absolutely, I love performing, but songs are the key to everything. It's all, it's what it's, this music business is built on. It's the only thing that matters as far as I'm concerned. I'm not interested in the fashion items of it all. I'm not interested in the, in the machismo of rock and roll. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm interested in singing a great song with a, with a, that's authentic, that has a narrative, that applies itself to the to, to, to my world experience and my life experience as a human being. That's what I do it for. And so I kind of, I sort of said to myself at the time, well, you know what, if, if I can't make my own music, if I can't tour under my own right and sing songs that matter to me, then I don't really want to do this until such time as that situation arises. And at the time I had a lot of production work on as well. So I kind of forgot about it. I just thought, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to be a producer. I'm going to write songs for other people. I was producing a guy called James Toesland, who was a very, who was a very famous uh, motorcycle, ex-motorcycle um, world champion. But he was a rock and roller as well. So I was making, I was writing music for him and I was producing his albums. So I kind of forgot about it. And then out of the blue, um, a friend of mine sent me an email um, and sort of said, he said to me, I'm working for a label called Frontiers Music in, in, in Italy. Um, and um, I'd be really interested in talking to you about singing, being the singer for um, an album that Steve Stevens is making. Would you be interested? And I said, and it's a guy called Derek Oliver who used to write for Kerrang! magazine. And he was also an A&R guy at Geffen for, for years. 
Um, and I said, sent him an email. I said, look, look, Derek, that sounds fantastic. What's the deal? And he said, well, Steve's written most of the material, but he hasn't got a singer. And I've been punting you as the singer. Would you be interested? And I said, well, of course I would. Now, that project didn't actually happen because um, I think Steve went off and found someone else or, it didn't, or the record never came out or whatever it was. But what it did was it introduced me to Serafino and Mario, um, the two guys that run the label. And I was kind of under, under the impression that they didn't really know who I was or what it was all about and what my history was. But within about a month of being introduced to those guys, I got an email from Serafino, the head of the company, saying, look, how do you fancy putting together a project? We'll pay for it. We, want, we would really love to help you get back on the horse. We love your voice. We love your songs. We love Little Angels. And I was kind of like, I was kind of perplexed, but I was also totally blown away by the fact that these guys... I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I, I was astounded that they even knew, knew who I was. You know, it's kind of it's been so many years, you know, since Little Angels and all that. So I had a conversation with them and they said, well, how do you fancy working with um, a bunch of uh, American guys and we can put a project together? So initially it was going to be me and Brian Tishy and James Lomenzo um, and possibly um, Buckethead, um, the guitar player Buckethead. We were going to put a project together. But that didn't pan out, and I wasn't feeling very comfortable about that. And then James and Brian, they felt uncomfortable about the situation for one reason or another. And so I sort of went back to Serafino and said, look, you know, this isn't going to work in this context, but if you're willing to let me put together my band in my way, then I would be interested. But I, wouldn't, I won't do it any other way. Because it had taken about three months to arrive at this situation where it was going nowhere, if you know what I mean. So, And they came back to me and said, Absolutely. You do exactly what you want and we, we will we will fund the record. So and I've got to say to you, Bob, I've never had that offer in my life ever before where a record company has done all the running. I mean, the only time it ever happened before was Polydor with, with, with Little Angels. But that was different because we were, you know, we were a, a hot act at the time when we were young kids. And, you know, we were all over the TV and all over the radio. And so people there was a kind of there was a, a fervent need to get hold of us as an act. You got to remember at this point, I was in my late 40s. Um, I didn't expect to anyone to really give a toss anymore, um, and they they did. So I was absolutely blown away by this. So I I I, I put the project together on, on my completely on my own um, under my own sort of um, uh, um, auspices. I got hold of um, some friends of mine from the past. You know, Nick Wastel, who's the bass player, who used to be in a band called Chrome Molly. Um, Dave Kemp, who was in the horn section from Little Angels, who was a keyboard player as well. I also spoke to a guy, uh, Phil Martini, who, would, who plays for, still does, plays for the Down and Outs with Joe Elliott. And and then a young guitar player who I'd worked with in, in one of the bands that I produced, um, you know, who, who, um, who, who was absolutely staggering, you know, Sam, Sam you know. And, um, and we just put the project together. And I did it under the, under the kind of situation that, I didn't anticipate there being any any success with it. I kind of just wanted to do it for the fun. I wanted to see if I could write songs in that format again. I wanted to have no pressure. I wanted to enjoy the process of recording, and I wanted to do it for myself and, and prove to myself that I could do it again. But lo and behold, it became an instant success in the UK, and specifically until the end immediately reacted at radio pretty much all over all over europe you know um and all of a sudden we were being asked to do download we were opening for ufo we were opening for saxon we were doing our headline our own headline tours 
And the next minute, I've, I've got a, I'm, I'm back on the horse. You know, we're all over the radio and the magazines want to talk to me. It was totally unexpected. Um, and I think the reason why it worked is because I took that attitude of not trying too hard. That's really what it came down to, you know. Right. Well, I mean, both records are solid, man. You know, Ghost of Yet to Come, solid. The Truth Ain't What It Used to Be is super solid. I mean, Any Other Way is a great song. Is Black as Sin, Little White Lies. I mean, both records are solid, Toby. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And you know what? I think they're easily two of the, the best documents I've ever created. Um, I mean, I am the principal songwriter. I write all the songs, but the guys, you know, commit so much to the band and I would never take that away from them. They're those guys, you know, they, they build those songs with me. I take the songs into the, into the rehearsal room and we work on those songs. And, you know, Sam is such an exciting young guitar player. Um, you know, and Nick is a brilliant bass player. And the guys, they, they all apply themselves so well to the projects. And I think the great thing about the, the relationship that we have together is that we all feel that we're heading in the same direction. All, all of us, apart from Sam, who's a young man, you know, we're, we've all been through the process of being in rock and roll for, for many, many years, you know. Um, and so none of us are kind of uh, are foolish to assume anything anymore. We all know that you have to work hard. We all know that there has to be a work ethic. But above all, we all know that the music is the key thing. We come from the same generation. I mean, Nick's a massive Beatles fan. We're all massive David Bowie fans, you know, and we're all huge rock and roll fans, you know. So we apply that concept that it has to be about quality. And I'm very, very hard on myself. I mean, I'm, but I'm also very prolific as a writer. I mean, for truth is uh, the truth thing, what it used to be, I wrote 56 songs for that album. Oh, wow. Um, and I know... And I know, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's absolutely the truth. I wrote 56 songs over a period of about three months. And we went into the studio with though that amount of songs. And we had to spend three or four sessions in the studio just sifting through the material. And I'm not saying that all of them were great. They were. A lot of them were utter rubbish. But, <laughs> the, the, point, but the point is you have to go through the process of figuring out which ones are going to work and how they apply themselves. And I also have a very strong focus on a narrative direction when I make my records these days. And as I've got older and I've made specifically made the young, uh, the, um, the, uh, the records for, for wayward sons, the principle for me has been, it has to have a coherent narrative. I want to make records like they used to make records back in the day. The records that I love, like Hunky Dory by David Bowie or Night at the Opera by Queen, you put those records on and it's a process from the first song until the very last song. There's a narrative trail. There's a story to be told. Every song is like a chapter in a book or a scene in a film. And it takes you on a journey. And I, I grow tired of the modern concept of the quick fix so many bands sound the same. I'm sick to death of hearing bands, band after band after band, just sounding like a kind of cookie cutter process, you know, where it's just they're using the same processes of Pro Tools, they're using the same ideas, using the same chord progressions. And I'm just not into that. I, I, I grew up with the Beatles. I grew up with David Bowie. I grew up with Queen. Real artists, you know, where it was a, it was a craft and I, and I want to get back to that. And I, I, I make no apology for that whatsoever. And so when we go into the studio with Wayward Sons, it's a craft. We have a joy of creating those songs and discussing where we think they can go and what they can mean and how the whole thing fits together as a project. And so 
I want my records to be journeys. I don't want them to be something that they just, you like the first two songs and the rest of it's not very good, you know? Um, right. And so, and I, and I, I want to continue doing that. I mean, we are currently in the middle of making our third album at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, it's an, it's an extraordinary experience finding people, Bob, that are on the same wavelength as you as a musicians. It's very difficult to do. And having been through a number of bands, specifically with the Little Angels, and experienced that, which was a growth from school. You know, we all met each other at school. And so those tendrils of connection were always there. It's very hard to find like-minded people that believe in the same concept as you. Um, and I'm a very open-hearted, very optimistic person. I'm also very political and also very so. I've got a social conscience, you know. And so I put a lot of that into into my music and I want I want to talk about the ills of the world I want to talk about the things I believe are wrong with the world but I don't want to preach all I want to do is I want to talk about it and get those conversations going as well as entertain people so it's multifaceted for me and on many many different levels you know absolutely one other thing that's very interesting about the uh the two wayward sun records is the artwork mm. so who who was responsible for the artwork well, that's a very close friend of mine called Stuart Dilly, who who's um, an absolutely staggering gra graphic artist. He works in comics over here, and he runs a company called Alchemy that that um, that design and um, supply specialist kind of um, a jewelry actually. But he also illustrates books, and he's written. Um, he's, sorry, he's, he's illustrated uh, um, other people's album sleeves, and he's just got he's just got a brilliant imagination and i i've got a love of american comics i was i i was brought up on uh on the the sort of pulp comic comics of the 1950s you know the sort of those comics that emerged out of the um house of un-american activities and the mccarthyism period that you guys went through back in the 50s you know and there was a whole raft of those comics that came out like amazing stories and weird tales and things like that and they they became um part of my world when i was about 12 13 years old because i was I, I i even though it was never diagnosed at school i think i was quite quite dyslexic um and i could i found it very hard to read and very hard to write but one thing i found solace in and i found a connection with was was comics and i very quickly cottoned on to the fact that you could understand a story through pictures and you could understand a story through simple bubble writing it didn't have to be about dense reading and and so i i quickly got that and i remember going to a um a uh, jumble sale for a, for because my mum and dad were quite churchy when i was when i was a kid i mean i'm not anymore at all i i i don't believe at all but but at the time i was brought up in that that in, in that world and we had church fates and church jumble sales and things um, and i went to this one particular ch church jumble sale and there was a stack of amazing tales reproductions these weren't originals but they were reproductions amazing tales and weird weird science and things like this must have been 40 comics all in pristine condition and they were all for sale for about i think it was a pound or one pound fifty which is probably about one dollar right so I bought these. I got. I managed to blag the money off my mum and took these comics home. And they had those wonderful pulp stories that were essentially um, they were they were rallying against the system in America at the time. I believe they were using the stories as allegories, as ways of talking about the difficulties that America was dealing with at the time. And they 
they encapsulate them in horror tales or science fiction stories or, you know, thrillers and, and this kind of thing. But what was brilliant about those magazines was that they had incredibly lurid, wonderful, wonderful covers. And so when I was putting Wayward Sons back to, to, together, I started thinking about my favorite album sleeves. And I started thinking, well, you know, think about something like Iron Maiden, you know, the way that they use the Eddie character from, from right from the first album, right to the present day, how they use those, those incredible pictorial concepts and develop these characters and generated an interest around that. But I also thought about things like um, Little Feet and things like that, those great album sleeves. And I thought about Iggy Pop, you know, um, uh, you, you know, um, there's two or three sleeves he did that were illustrated. And I started realizing that sort of a lot of my love of album sleeve art was, was the illustrations. Um, and, and there's so many examples of that, through, you know, through, through, the, through the beginning of, of great vinyl, you know, back in the day when vinyl was, as, as you and I will both know, and a lot of people hopefully listening to this or reading this will, will remember those great album sleeves of ELO or David Bowie or any of these, or, or Queen, the Queen album sleeves. I actually wonder, think about, think about um, News of the World and that brilliant illustration, you know, of, you know, of the guys being held up by the robot and all the rest of it. I just thought, that's what I want to do. I want to get back to that. I want to get back to that. That I, I, I like the idea of somebody picking up my album and looking at that and pouring over the artwork and looking at every detail and, and trying to understand what I was saying with that and the hidden the hidden detail within the, within those illustrations. And so I went to Stuart and said, look, I've got this idea. Ghosts are yet to come. It's my, my take on the world at the moment and how everyone's terrified and paranoid about the way the world's going and all the rest of it and how... You know, we all accept things and the Internet's a big, you know, is, 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 a, is a great thing, but it's also a terrible thing and all these all these sort of concepts. And um, I kind of come up with the idea that, you know, for me, America represents freedom, you know, in, in its greatest sense. Um, and I came I came up with the idea, you know, of like, what if the the, the idea of, of liberty is being attacked by these outside forces, you know, and they could be represented in this concept of mad professors, which could represent politics could represent um you know under underlying factors of, of social dis, dis, distrust etc etc and and also technology so and, and of course the statue of liberty is um a, a huge worldwide representation of the sense of freedom to, to, the, to the whole world certainly for me you know um and so that was what we put into that and i just said i just i just said those things to, to Stuart and just left him to it and the sleeve that you see on Ghosts Are Yet to Come is pretty much the first thing that he came up with, apart from just basically tinkering with it and making it as, as you know as cool as he could. Um, and I was just absolutely blown away by it. And you know the whole idea of the back sleeve with the comic continuing the comic concept through through to the back sleeve and all the rest of it is something that I feel that we've has really helped the band. You know we've obviously had a, a whole raft of, of merchandise and um, and over here you know we've 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 it's been talked about a lot and it's become massively part of the reason why people understand who we are and what we are. And I think that's just, it illustrates the power of, of art and drawing and imagery in connection with music and how potent that is. I and mean, I will never have a sleeve where it's just me on the front of it ever again, if you know what I mean, because I've really, un, I've un, I now realize that the power of it is so potent and people love it, you know? So, um, yeah, so Stuart Dilly, he's the genius, you know, uh, he's the guy that illustrates stuff and, and, and he's working on the new sleeve for the third album right now, you know. That's awesome, man. That's that's pretty cool. So I do have one more question and I got to ask only because I'm such a huge fan of Little Angels. Is there ever a chance for a new album? 
I knew you were going to ask that one. Um, I had to. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know what? We're all really great friends again. You know, we, we talk a lot. I'm very close to Bruce again. I'm still very close to Mark Plunkett. Um, Jim Dickinson lives about five miles down the road from me. We're really good mates. We, you know, we're, we're close. You know, Mark Richardson, who was the last drummer in the band, you know, he's he's plays in Skunk and Nancy still. He's But he's a real good friend. We've been talking quite a bit recently about doing some stuff together again. I think it's more likely it will be the, in the form of live shows. I mean, we were talking about next year of doing like a 30, I mean, can you believe 30 years since the Young Gods album? Yeah, I mean, it wow. doesn't even bear thinking about, does it, man, you know? Man. But, um, but we were thinking about doing like 2021, like a, a tour of, uh, pro, most likely just in the UK, because obviously that's where our biggest market is, but just like celebrating that record. But we did discuss the possibility of going back in the studio and reimagining some of the songs in a kind of different format. I don't think we'll ever write songs for Little Angels again, because I think the thing about Little Angels, and I think which is really important to remember, is that we left on a high. We did the Royal Albert Hall, sold out. We'd had a number one album. We'd sold a million records. And we felt that we'd kind of... There was a lot of reasons why the band split up, and that's another conversation. But the point, the fact is, is that we we felt that all things considered, that period had come to a close, and we felt that we'd done what we needed to do in that period. And my worry, and I've said this to the guys, and I think we all agree, is that if we try to open that door again on writing contemporary music for a band that were successful thirty years ago, it may well disrupt the very good stuff that we feel exists which is the memory of it all the potency of those three records the fact that it still exists in people's consciousness and i wouldn't want to unpick that but i do think there is a chance we might go and record together but it will be most likely a bit reimagining and because we, we all feel that some of the songs that we recorded through the whole of the band's career perhaps could have been imagined in a different way um and so there is that possibility, but I doubt there'll be any new material. I would say that. Okay, well, that's very well said. I can totally understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Totally, I yeah. totally get it. Well, cool, to man. Man, Toby, you know, it's been great talking to you, brother. I just, you got anything you'd like to promote? You want to you throw out your website? Any of that, any of that good stuff? Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I'm, you know, what I'm doing at the moment, I mean, it's what I've found over the last few months with because of the pandemic um, and being locked down in the UK is I had to reinvent myself online, you know, and I've, I've, I've always been, you know, even though I'm, I'm an, uh, you know, I'm an older guy and a bit of a Luddite, um, I do embrace the new technologies. And even though I've, I'm, I'm suspicious of, you know, of, 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 um, of the Internet in its entirety, I don't I don't believe it is. It, all all good i think there's a lot of bad things about it i do think there's a lot of really really great things about it one of the key things is the connection to the fans um and so i've reinvented myself online i spent a lot of time doing live concerts i formed um a thing a patreon site i don't know if you've heard of patreon but patreon is like a kind of fan-based sort of subscription uh, website um which I've, I've i've formed and um that's for anyone to join and on there you will get the most in-depth most immersive um, so, so, you know, opportunity, you know, opportunity to look at my work and to engage with me. I do a lot of online live broadcasts. I do lo a lot of lo online live um, performances. But it is a fan. It's a sort of super fan site, really. But I found that the online broadcasts I've been doing over the last few months have kind of 
completely re re-energized me and made me look at my music um, in its total. And so, yeah, I, you know, if anyone's interested in me or wants to find out more, um, go and have a look at tobyjepsonofficial.com. That's my that's my website. And my Patreon site is Toby and the Whole Truth, Patreon, um, uh, patreon.com forward slash Toby and the Whole Truth. And if you're interested, then join up and get involved. You know, I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I feel more compelled and more inspired than I've ever done in my entire life. I've got more I've got more I, I want to say than ever before. Uh, and I, I still feel I've got this, there's plenty of life in the old dog yet, you know, so um, it's a really exciting time. And, and, and you know, you, you know, having guys like yourself, Bob, to be interesting enough to even want to talk to me is, is fantastic. And I, I, I thank you so much for this interview. I really do. No, and I appreciate you, man. It really meant a lot to me. No, no, anytime and let's stay in touch and I'd be more than willing, willing to do some more of this with you. No problem. Well, I appreciate it. I will stay in touch. And once again, Toby, thank you very much. And you have a great rest of your evening. And you, sir, you take care of yourselves. All righty. Thank Bye. you. Yep. Take Bye. care, my friend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That concludes today's episode of the Metal Bob Live podcast. Please check our website for our sponsor links. And thank you for listening. Metal Bob out.